So listen, let me welcome you into the third week of our current study, um, which is a study through the book of Galatians, where we are thinking together about the idea of freedom. We're calling this for freedom, and we're learning about the freedom that Christ has provided to us, and not only how he has provided it and how we can experience it, but then how we can live it out, how we can walk in that freedom. Now, if you've been here over the last couple of Sundays, you will remember that we talked about the fact that the book of Galatians, before it was a book in our Bible, it was first of all a letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. Many people believe that Galatians is the first, the earliest letter that Paul wrote that's included in our New Testament. And it was written not long after he had made his first missionary journey all across the landscape of modern-day Turkey. And in the middle part of that, that uh, piece of land that we call Turkey is the area, the region of Galatia. Paul went there and he preached the gospel and churches were established there. And then later, after having left that region, he then writes letters back to those churches. And one of those was the letter to the churches in Galatia, which became our book of Galatians. Now, Paul writes this letter, as some of you will recall, to confront a heresy, to confront a problem that is arising in those churches. We talked in week number one about the stern tone of Paul. Motivated by his deep love for these Galatian people, he's now in a very stern voice confronting the problem of legalizers or the problem of Judaizers. These are the people who came in behind Paul's ministry after he left and they began to cast doubt on his apostleship. They began to question his authority and therefore they began to undermine what he had been teaching about salvation coming to us simply by trusting in Jesus. In fact, the ethos of the legalizers, the Judaizers, is found in uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. You don't have to turn. I'll read it to you. Uh, we read it last week. Acts 15, verse 1 says, And certain men which came down from Judea, from Jerusalem, taught the brethren, these new Christians in Galatia and the other towns, saying to them, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. This was what they were teaching, these legalizers, that if you are going to go to heaven, if you're going to be right with God, if you are going to be saved, you must obey the law of God. You have to keep the law. And so this, this group of teachers teaching this false doctrine of salvation by works became this constant challenge for Paul as they were constantly questioning his message of salvation by grace alone. In fact, he says in chapter 1 and verse 7 of Galatians that they are troubling you. They are teaching a perverted gospel. And he writes this letter to confront it. It's a flashpoint. It really is a point of division in the early church that had to be settled. It's the question of, am I saved by faith in Jesus or am I saved by being good? Am I saved by trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ or am I saved by keeping the law of Moses? That was the question. And for Paul, and I should say for all of us as well, this was a hill to die on. I mean, this really was a place where he drew a line in the sand and he said, we will not budge on the issue of salvation by grace through faith alone. 
Now, last week, we ended our time together in chapter 2, verse number 13 and 14 in that area where we talked about the, the insidious nature of legalism, how that there's something within us that really wants to perform and get approval by God. Somehow we want to merit or earn in some way our salvation, or at least part of it. There's something in our human nature that wants to do that. And so as we kill legalism, it tends to slither back in. I said to you, it's like a snake. You can run it off, and it's going to come back. You can kill it, and another one will show up. You know, I used that illustration last week, and by midweek, I got two texts with pictures with people in our church holding up snakes, and I killed the snake of legalism. <laughs> they were actually just black snakes, but, but they killed the snakes. And it's, it's this insidious nature of legalism that kind of creeps back into our lives that Paul's dealing with in chapter number two. You remember last week, we talked about the confrontation that happened between Paul and Peter. Because even though Peter understood salvation by grace alone, in, in chapter number two of Galatians, Paul describes how that he begins to slip back into a legalistic attitude. Let me show it to you. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. This is where we ended last week. Chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain ones came from James, or from the church in Jerusalem, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew himself, separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And even other Jews acted hypocritically likewise with him, insomuch that even Barnabas was carried away with their dissimulation or with their hypocrisy. So what's going on, as I explained to you last Sunday, is that, or two weeks ago, is that um, Peter, before this group of Jewish believers from Jerusalem shows up in Antioch, he's at the table with the Gentiles. He's enjoying the meals with the Gentiles. He's just living as a free man in Christ with his brothers in Christ. And when the Jews come from Jerusalem, he begins to separate himself because he doesn't want to be seen as not being a good Jew. And he wants to be accepted by those Jewish legalizers. And so he breaks fellowship uh, with these Gentile believers. So Paul says in verse 11, I confronted him to his face, and he does. I mean, this might be called a good old-fashioned smackdown. It really was. This, this was like an apostolic smackdown where, where Paul confronts Peter about this rank hypocrisy. And in our text today, and we're going to pick up the text in verse number 14, but in our text, you're reading Paul's letter to the Galatians where he is quoting to them or rehearsing for them the words that he spoke to Peter. So be sure you understand this. These words are in the book of Galatians, written to the Galatians, but they are the exact words that Paul had spoken to Peter in Antioch. Let's read it. Acts, or I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 14. He says, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if you being a Jew are willing to live like a Gentile and not do what the Jews are commanded to do, then why are you compelling the Gentiles to live like the Jews live? That's the hypocrisy. 
Peter, you believe that you're free and you can live like a Gentile, but when the Jews come, you make the Gentiles perform like the Jews and keep the law of God. Why are you doing that? Why are you being a Judaizer is uh, the word that he actually uses in verse number 14. Verse number 15, he says, Paul says to Peter, we who are Jews by nature or by birth and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus so that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found to be sinners, is Christ therefore the minister of sin? God forbid. Everybody say those two words with me. God forbid. You know what it means? May it never Be so, God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. It means to nullify. I don't make void or nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ has died for nothing. If righteousness can be achieved by keeping the law, then Christ is dead in vain, the Bible says. Now earlier, I asked you a question. The question was, are you right with God? And the question could be answered by simply understanding the need that I have to be right with God. By understanding the fact that I have to ask the question, it exposes the need that all of us have to actually be brought into a right relationship with God. And Paul tells us in this passage how it is that we can be right. If you're a note taker, I want you to jot down somewhere in your notes this simple Pauline doctrinal fact from Galatians chapter 2. It is that Paul tells us that justification is by faith alone. Jot it down somewhere. Justification is by faith alone. Now, I just said to you, the fact that we have to ask the question, am I right with God, exposes the fact that all of us need to be right with God. There are not any among us who in our original condition, who in our fallen state, are in fact right with God. We're wrong with God. And so we all need a a divine intervention that will make us right. And in fact, Paul says that this is true of every single person. Look at verse number 15. He divides all of humanity in verse 15 into two uh, groups of people, two populations. First of all, he says, we who are Jews by birth. That's the first group. He says, some of us are Jews by birth. Probably not any of us, maybe a few of us in this room, but for the most part, we are all in the other group. The other group in verse number 15 is sinners of the Gentiles. Paul takes the entire human family, says you're either a Jew by birth or you're a sinner 
of the Gentiles. Now, the difference between the two groups is very obvious. It's more than just an ethnic difference. It's a difference of heritage and knowledge. The Jews are the sons, the descendants of Abraham. And in Abraham, they came to know the identity of the one true God because God revealed himself to Abraham and his sons. They are the sons of Abraham, descended from Abraham in the knowledge of God. And it was to the Jews that God gave his law, his word, his commandments, that we understand who God is and how he thinks and how he functions and what he requires. All of that knowledge came to us through the nation of the Jews. They are the descendants of Abraham who had the knowledge of God and the word of God And they had been trained their entire lives to love God and to serve him. In fact, I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter number 6, which many of you will be familiar with. Deuteronomy 6.4, the great Shema. The Hebrew word Shema is here, H-E-A-R. Hear, O Israel, verse number 4 says. Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. By the way, that's Jewish knowledge. That's God revealing to Abraham and his descendants who he is. There are not many gods. There's not a multiplicity of gods like the pagans and the Gentiles have always believed. There's one God. The Lord our God is one Lord. And you're responsible to love him. Now, the Gentiles have never been told that. You're responsible to love him. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words which I command thee. That's the law of God, the word of God. The words which I command thee shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently unto your children. They shall talk, or you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall take my commands, bind them near your heart, put them before your eyes, Put them on the doorposts of your house. Write them on the gates of your property so that every day of your life you are confronted with, taught by, filled with the truths of the word and the commands of God. That's the heritage of the Jewish people. They have the knowledge of God. They have the word of God. They have the teaching of how to live a life that pleases God. That's the first group, Galatians 2, uh, verse number 15. So he says, that's the, those uh, who are Jews by birth. And then there's another group. The other group are the sinners of the Gentiles. Now, uh, if you are non-Jewish, would you raise your hand, please? Non-Jewish, raise your hand. Here we go. We are a room full of heathen. <laughs> That's what the word sinners means. The heathen of the Gentiles. It just means all the other nations who do not, have not known God, and to whom these truths were not taught like they were taught to the Jewish people. But here's what's interesting. That Paul reminds Peter of what he already knows. And that is that that all people, both Jews and Gentiles, must be made to be right with God. That the Jewish people were not right with God just because they were Jewish people or just because of the laws that they kept. They needed to be made to be right with God. And in the same way, the Gentiles had to be right, uh, made to be right with God as well. 
Now, in Galatians, Paul uses a word for the first time in this book, and really I think it's the first time in his teaching, because we believe this was the first letter that he wrote included in the New Testament. It's the word justified. I want you to take your pen if you're a note taker, and I want you to circle it. You'll see it in Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 16, and you'll find it in that verse 3 times. Galatians 2.16, let's read it. Knowing that a man is not, there it is, circle it, justified. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be, circle it again, justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be, circle it one last time, justified. Three times in one verse, justified. And if you go to the next verse, look at verse 17. There it is again. In verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified, circle it in verse 17 as well. Four times in two verses, he talks about being justified. Even in verse number 21, if you go to the last verse of the chapter, circle the word righteousness. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. That is the same Greek word. At least it's a a, a form of the same Greek word. It's talking about the righteousness which comes with justification. So four times in these verses, really five times in these brief verses, Paul writes about being justified. And to be justified is to be right with God. Now if y'all are with me, I want you to shout amen. Don't miss this. When we are made right with God, it means that we have been justified. What does the word justified mean? It's a legal word. It comes from the courts. It's a a word that's borrowed from the courts. And it is intended to communicate that, that justification is a judicial act which is handed down, a ruling handed down from the highest court in eternity, the court of God, where God himself sits upon the throne above all other rulers. And it simply means this. To be justified means, write it down, to be declared righteous. It is a declaration where God as the judge says of a sinner, you are righteous. It is the act whereby God pronounces a sinner to be innocent, accepts that sinner as such, and treats him as a righteous person. To be justified is to have God Almighty look at a sinning person, Jew or Gentile, and to declare of them, you are right with me, I accept you, and call you into fellowship with myself because I have declared You are right with me. When I ask the question, are you right with God? Another way to ask it would be to say, have you been justified before God? Well, Paul talks to us repeatedly in this passage about justification. And as I mentioned, he reminds Peter in this passage of what he already knows, and it is that all people, both groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, and all the people in the world must be brought into a right relationship with God. They must be justified in order to be right with God. Now, what he tells Peter and what he tells us is how justification or rightness with God does not come. 
Look at it. Chapter number 2, verse number 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinners of the Gentiles, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Stop right there. Paul says that no Jewish person or Gentile person is ever going to be made right with God by keeping the law. Now here's the implication of that. What Paul is saying to Peter and to the Galatians, and I want to be as clear in the way that I say it to you today as Paul was. He was saying to Peter and to the Galatians that by virtue of their Judaism, listen, by virtue of their keeping the law, by virtue of their mark of circumcision, by virtue of their going to temple, by virtue of all of the following the 613 laws that they were commanded to follow, by virtue of their Judaism, no Jews in Paul's day were any more righteous than any of the Gentiles in Paul's day. I'm just going to let that sink into your heart for a minute. That those who had received the law of God and who had the word of God and who were keeping the commandments, by virtue of their keeping those commandments, they were no more righteous than any Gentile who never even had heard of those commandments. That's Paul's point. Now let me translate it into our day. Here's what that means. It means that by virtue of their religious practices, churchgoers today, I'll say it again, by virtue of sitting in church on a Sunday morning, churchgoers are no more righteous before God than a non-churchgoer. Can I say it to you another way? Y'all doing okay? By virtue of their pleasant behavior, their their right actions, their socially acceptable behavior, moral people, by virtue of being moral, are no more right with God than an immoral person. Okay? Now this one's going to hurt a little bit. All right? You ready? By virtue of their conservatism, conservatives are no more right with God than liberals. This is Paul's point. That no one, do you see it? Verse number 16, chapter 2, 16. He says, we know. Do you see it? Knowing that no one is justified by the works of the law. Well, if I'm not made right with God by being Jewish and keeping the rules, and if I'm not made right with God by going to church and keeping the good church rules, if I'm not made right with God by being moral, and if I'm not made right with God by being conservative or whatever else, if I'm not made right uh, with God by those things, what makes me right with God? It is by the faith, verse 16 says, of Jesus Christ. It is when I put my faith in Christ that justifies me and makes me right with God. Well, what is it that I believe or trust in 
about Christ. Look at verse number 20, Galatians 2 and verse number 20. He says in that verse, at the middle part of the verse, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. There's the first thing you have to believe. You gotta know that Christ loves you, that God loves you, and that Christ gave himself for you. That he left heaven and he came and took on your sin. And verse 21 says, and that Christ died for me. So whether you are Jewish or Gentile, whether you are a regular churchgoer or a first-time person in church ever on today, whether you're moral or immoral, here's what Paul would say. If you want to be justified, if you want to be right with God, believe this. Trust in this. God loves you in Christ. Christ came and took your sin. Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. Trust it, and that will make you right with God when nothing else will. That's that's Paul's point. Now, Peter knows that, but he's reminding Peter of that, and he's telling the Galatians as, about that conversation with Peter, reminding them of it as well. What he's saying is, when we understand who Jesus is, and we know what Jesus did, and we know that only through trusting in Jesus that we're going to be made right with God, then we, then we get to stop all of the trying and all of the rearranging of our lives and turning over new leaves and picking a new direction and choosing a new path and, and we get to stop all of the works in order to try to be right with God and we stop trying to make the grade and we just with reckless hope-filled abandon cast ourselves upon the mercy of God Almighty in Jesus Christ. And he says in that moment when we do that, we are made right with God. I love the way he ends this chapter, by the way, in verse number 21. Look at it. He says, I do not or I will not nullify the grace of God. I will not nullify the grace of God. For if, for if uh, salvation or justification or righteousness comes by the law, then Jesus died for nothing. You know what he's saying? Listen, he's saying God wrote a check to pay for my sin and to make me right with God. God wrote a check in the blood of his son Jesus and Paul says, I'm not gonna take the check that God wrote to pay for my salvation and void his check and write my own check that I don't even have what it takes to cash. That would be foolishness. I'm just gonna cash God's check. I'm not gonna nullify or make void the grace of God. And so hear me. If your answer to the question, are you right with God, was no. By the way, I was so encouraged after our first service. I met a guy who was here for the very first time in our first service. He met me out of the fireplace. And he, he told me the story of why he was here today. And it had to do with the death of a loved one. And his loved one loved Jesus. And he said he loved Jesus so much, I felt like I ought to go to church and find out what it was all about. And I said, when I asked that question, are you right with God, what did you say? And he said, I, my answer was no. I said, do you want to be? He said, man, I do. And he gave his heart to Jesus. If your answer was no, I'm not right with God, let me just say it to you plainly. You need to stop trying to get right because you're not going to be able to ever be right. You just need to cast yourself in confidence and faith in the work of Jesus Christ. That'll bring justification. All right, so that's the first thing Paul says. That justification comes by faith alone. But it brings up the question, well, what about living right? If I'm made right by trusting in Jesus, 
What about living right? It's a good question. So I want you to write it down. What Paul goes on to teach is this. It is that sanctification is by faith alone as well. Sanctification is by faith alone. Now, I need to say that there were some of these Jewish believers, these Judaizers in Paul's day, many of whom had truly trusted in Christ as their Savior, but they were Jews, and they believed that the Gentiles ought to be Jewish as well. If they're going to come to Christ, they've got to be Jewish like us, right? And, and so they had genuine concerns, and here was their concern. They were worried that these Gentile heathen, these sinners, these pagans, were going to put their faith in Jesus, and then... They were going to keep living the way they've always lived. Nothing would change about their pagan lifestyle because they trusted in Jesus and that's all they had to do. They didn't have to change anything about how they lived. So here's their argument. Their argument is we need the law. Even though we're not saved by the law, we need the law. We need to impose the law upon ourselves and others so that it will moderate their behavior. So that they'll live right because the law tells them to live right. We don't want them to be trusting in Jesus and then continuing to live in sin. Now, Paul deals with this in verse number 17. Look at it, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves continue to be found living in our sin. Are we found sinners? It means we're, we're continuing in our sin. Are we making, by doing so, Christ the servant of our own sin. Listen to me. If I pray, Jesus be my savior, and then I keep living like I've always lived, is Jesus just accommodating and serving my sinful life? And you need to know, Paul is apoplectic at that idea. I mean, he is indignant that such could ever be the case. He asks the question in verse number 17, if we seek to be justified by Christ and we continue to be sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? Here's his answer, verse 17. God forbid, may it never be so. Why? Look at verse 17. If we seek, if while we seek to be justified by Christ, if y'all are listening, shout amen. If we seek to be justified by our union, with Christ. Listen carefully. If we come to Christ and we are joined to him by faith, Paul says if we are changed by our union with him, our lives will have to change. That when I am joined with Christ, I am joined with the perfect and pure and holy son of God. He is mine. I am his. My life is hid in Christ with God. I am totally unified with him. Then he is going to sanctify my life and change it for his glory. Doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect day one. Doesn't mean I'll ever be perfect in this life. But he's going to transform my life because of my union with him. John R. Stott A British theologian of our own generation wrote these words powerfully. He said, justification is not legal fiction in which a man's status is changed while his character is left untouched. What Stott says is you can't be joined to Christ justified legally and yet nothing change in you. In fact, this is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You know that verse. We studied it. It was the theme verse of our Transformed series. It says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, and behold, all things become new. 
Well, the Judaizers, the legalizers that were arguing with Paul would say, well, yeah, when people trust in Jesus, they're changed, but they still have to keep the law. We still have to impose the law on them in order for them to live the way that we think they should live. Now, I want you to notice Paul's response to that. I want you to look at verse number 18. He says in verse 18, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, this is a, a beautiful verse, it's a little bit complex, but it's a beautiful statement. If I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself, I prove that I am a transgressor. Now here's what Paul is saying, listen carefully. He says, if I deconstruct the law of Moses, the law of God, and set it aside, in order to be justified, not by keeping the law, but rather by having faith in Jesus Christ, because that's the only way a person's justified. So if I take the law, I deconstruct it and set it aside and say, it can't help me be justified. Jesus, would you justify me? And he makes me right with God. Paul says, why would I then build back what I just took down? Or why would I reconstruct the law that I just deconstructed to be saved, why would I then reconstruct that law and reimpose it upon my life or upon the lives of others in order to grow in sanctification? I can't do that, he says. In fact, Paul's point is to say that law-keeping is not how lost people are justified, and neither is law-keeping how justified people are sanctified. So not only can you not be saved by keeping the law, you cannot become sanctified by keeping the law. Why not? I mean, it doesn't really seem logical, does it? I mean, keeping the law is good. It's a good thing to do the right things. But does it sanctify me? Well, listen to what he says. Look at it in verse number 19. Here's why we can't do that. I'm almost finished. Hang with me. If y'all doing okay, say amen. If you're not, say I'm not doing okay. If somebody had stood up and said, I am not okay, I would have been really embarrassed at that moment. Look at verse number 19. He says in verse number 19, For I through the law am dead to the law. You know why the law can't sanctify me? Because I've died to the law. And just like the law, the laws of gravity, the laws of nature, the laws of a society, the laws of a religion, none of those laws have any power over a dead man in his casket. He's dead to all those laws. He says, I have died to the law of God. It has no power over me. Now, I'm going to wrap up, and we're going to, ha we're going to have the joy of baptizing some people. And in fact, the, the, the way that I want to close and kind of tie all this together is going to segue beautifully into our, um, our baptism. But I want you to know that Paul says that I, I cannot be sanctified by keeping the law because I have died to the law. By the way, just as an aside, and we'll talk about this over the next couple of weeks a little bit more, um, some were charging Paul with a heresy known as antinomianism. Antinomianism. Uh, and the word means uh, no law. Anti means against, and nomian means law. So they were saying, Paul, you hate the law. You've thrown off the law completely. You say that the law is worthless. And this is a belief even in our day today that some people believe that because I'm under grace, right, I'm saved by grace, I can do anything I want to, right? Because it's all grace. I, don't, I have no rules. I have no laws. God's laws have no power over me. I can do whatever I want to do. Do you know anybody like that, by the way? 
I mean, these are the kind of people who say, this is going to be the perfect relationship. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. This is great. <laughs> That's antinomianism. It's, there is no law for me. I'm under grace. I can do whatever I want to do. No, Paul says that that's not what I'm talking about. And let me take you over to Romans to show you that. So just in, in the last few minutes, go to Romans. It's backwards a few pages toward the, toward the front of your Bible. Go to Romans chapter 5 and listen to how Paul deals with this kind of freewheeling idea of people under grace can do anything that they want to do. That is not true. And Paul uh, deals with that false teaching. So let me take you to Romans chapter 5 and verse number 19. Paul's dealing with uh, the, the issue here of substitutionary atonement in Christ. He says in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. That's by Adam's disobedience we were all made sinners. So by the obedience of one, that's Jesus, shall many be made righteous or justified. Moreover, the law entered so that the offense or our sin might abound. We would see it for what it is. It would become large to us. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Well, praise God. Anybody in the room glad that God's grace superabounds our abundant sin? Amen? Hallelujah. You ought to say amen. In your greatest sin, God's grace is greater. You say, Pastor, if you only knew what I've done, God would never forgive me. Whatever the abundance of your sin, God has greater grace than you've ever gotten and you ever have sinned. He says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And the, as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might life reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? There's the question of antinomianism. He anticipates it. When he's teaching this thing of God's grace over our sin, he anticipates that somebody's going to say, well, great, I'm under grace, I can keep sinning. I can do anything that I want to do. Listen to Paul's answer. God forbid. Did I tell you what that means? It's like three times we've read it today. May it never be so. I will never forget when my oldest daughter drove our car into our den when she was about 13. True story. Tracy had the idea she was going to let her practice driving. And so she, she got in the driver's seat and, and our den door was at the end of the driveway, one of those garage conversions, you know, where we put the doors up and made it a den. And she got in and she put it in the wrong gear and pow, she drove into the den. Tracy called me at the church and said, can you come home? <laughs> this is a true story. I, I drove home. She told me what happened. I drove home. I got out of the car. My wife and all of our kids were in the front yard looking at the car in the den. Tracy met me at the car, and the first words out of her mouth were, the neighbors are watching. <laughs> it's true. Well, we got it out, got it fixed, and it was all good. Can you imagine if a week later she had called me and said, hey, I'm thinking about letting Whitney practice driving again. You know what I said? God forbid! May it never be so. That's what Paul's saying. No, you can't continue living in sin once you've met Jesus. You can't reject all the righteous directives of God and his word just because you're under grace. Why can't we do it, he said, uh, he, would be the question. Verse 2, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Do you not know that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Paul says, we have died to that old life. 
when we put our trust in Jesus, we were so united with Christ, his death became our death, and we died to that old life. By the way, that's the reason in a few minutes we're going to put six people in that baptistry, not at the same time. Six people are going to be baptized, and we're going to bury their old life. Why? Because it's dead. It's gone. They've died to it. And as Christ was buried, we're going to bury them, and we will raise them up like he was risen to live a brand new life in Jesus. That's what baptism symbolizes. Paul says you can't continue living in sin once you've met Jesus. Because you've died to that life. And not only have you died to that life, but you've died to the law which condemned you in that life. Look at chapter 7 of Romans. Chapter 7 and verse 1. The first four verses of Romans chapter 7 are an illustration where he's using the law of marriage to illustrate the truth of how we're bound to the law of God. Romans 7, verse 1, Know you not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband is dead, then she's loosed from the law of her husband. So if while, she, uh, if while her husband is alive, she be married to another man, she should be called adulterous. But if her husband is dead, then she's free from that law. She's not an adulterer. She can marry uh, without being an adulteress because her husband is dead and so the law is broken. That's the illustration. Here's the application in verse four. Wherefore, in the same way, my brothers, you also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ so that you might be married to another, that's Jesus, even him who raised, was raised from the dead so that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Give me 30 more seconds and I'm gonna almost be done in 30 seconds. Listen carefully. He says, you and I have died when we put our faith in Christ. By the Holy Spirit, we were baptized into Christ. His death became our death, and we died to that old life. And at the same time, the law which condemned us in our sin was perfectly fulfilled by Jesus. And he took our sin, dying on the cross, fulfilling the law. He died, and we died with him, and we died to our sin, and we died to the law. But now he has been risen from the dead, and we are raised to be united with him so that in this new union with Christ, we will live a life full of fruitfulness to the glory of God. So go back to Romans 6. In Romans chapter 6, did I say Romans 6? I don't know why I said that. Galatians 2. In Galatians chapter 2, in verse number 19, Paul uses the exact same language. For I, through the law, am dead to the law. It is not the law. It is not the rules. Now, I'm for the rule. I'm not against the rules. We'll talk about this in a future week, but just hear me say it. It is not keeping the rules, keeping the law that's going to make you justified, right with God, or sanctified, living right. You're dead to that stuff. It's lost its power over you. You died to it. But you live. That I might live unto God. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in this flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to me, Christian. It is not 
the rules that will sanctify your life. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit, the life of Jesus Christ within you that animates and activates and energizes your life to be a life that's sanctified to the glory of God. And so don't come to faith by trusting in Jesus, setting aside the law, and then rebuild a rule system to try to be right with God. Let the Savior who died for you and rose again live that resurrection life in you. And you'll be right, and you'll live right.